what picture comes to your mind when you hear these two words? Evangelical Christian. Perhaps a conservative political figure or a radical preacher. Perhaps someone with a red face and angry eyes yelling about hell. Or perhaps you think of great theologians of the past like A.A. Hodge, John Stott, Jonathan Edwards, or George Whitfield. Perhaps it conjures up thoughts of betrayal, hurt, and confusion. Evangelical Christian might be one of the most misunderstood and misrepresented terms we have in Christianity today. But what does it actually mean? What is the historical significance behind the term? Is it still a helpful term today? Or is it time to abandon it and start all over again? We discuss this and more today on The Exchange. Evangelicalism. That's what we're talking about in today's episode. I'm Josh Pinnell, and this is The Exchange Podcast. Okay, guys, I've got a big question for you to start off this episode. What do you think of when you hear the word evangelicalism or evangelical Christian? I see, this sounds weird, but I I see kids at a camp <laughs> okay. removed from where the city is and they have their hands in the air and someone's up on the stage screaming at them. Alex, what do you think of? I think of a term that is so unhelpful. No, no, no give us a picture. Give oh, us a picture. picture. Like, what, what do you see picture? in your mind when, when someone says evangelical? The Honestly, what I mind. see is I see four, four views on evangelical. <laughs> <laughs> Counterpoint series. Counterpoint check series from Zondervan. Yep, check that's, it out. Yeah, actually, that's you actually probably should put that in the, in with the, the notes. With the blue background and the church. Yep. It's the up angle on yep. it. That's I, what I, I see. That book. Josh, what do you think? <laughs> or what do you see? Dude, what do I think of? Well, we already talked about I have a hard time thinking in pictures. So okay. I don't know so if what I'll do tell you what I see. I think I, I tend to think of more politically when I hear the word evangelical or evangelical Christian. Interesting. Yeah, I would say either either like like Donald Trump or I would say there's like two extremes for me. There's like the political side and like Donald Trump and crazy conservative Christians come to mind or people who would call themselves conservative Christians politically or like someone preaching at T4G. <laughs> those are like the two things that come to mind. And those two things don't go together, which uh, I think we're going to end up talking about later. At least I don't think they go together. But those are the two things that come to my mind. Alex is shaking his head. Why, why my, are you phone shaking? Was, my phone was going off. Sorry. Oh, I, no, I had to silence it. Okay. So no, I, I agree. Like that, it's just a term that literally can mean anything at this point. Yeah, I think so. Well, okay. The, here's the next big question. Not what do you guys think of? What do you think other people think of when they hear the word evangelical Christian? Well, in the in the United States today, I think a lot of people think, I think a lot of people think, <laughs> I believe that for a lot of people, what they what they see is the political landscape. So evangelical equals right winger, it equals an extremist, it equals someone who probably voted for Donald Trump whether it was for love of the man or if it was for the Supreme Court justice or for abortion, whatever reason. I think in our culture, that's what we think of. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I do think that too. 
Um, man, it's just such a term that's like so hard to like <laughs> come down on like what it means because I don't know. Like, you could even think of I don't know. That might that might be the most like used or uh, affirmed definition. So I had this this experience where I was in a room of people and someone was asking a similar question. You know, what do you think about when you hear uh, about uh, you know d- different different categories uh, within our American culture today? And like everyone was saying super nice things about all these different categories. You know, uh, whether it be dedicated or family oriented or something like that. And then someone said, okay, what do you think of when you hear evangelical Christian? That's a great <laughs> question. And I was like, Oh, I cannot wait to hear what happens. Was that like an icebreaker game? Yeah. Uh, unfortunately kidding. it was not. No, <laughs> <laughs> it was serious. But, uh, the first guy, first guy just yells out. <laughs> I was like, Oh my gosh. And then someone else just yells loud, arrogant, rude, pig headed, obnoxious. I was like, Oh my gosh. The animosity in this room is out, out of, off the charts right now. But I think that one thing that's definitely true is the perception of evangelicalism is widely different between those who are inside of it and those who are outside of it. Do you think that that's true? Yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think that while it's it's a hard turn to pin down, like we haven't gotten a definition right now, it's, it's, it's hard to pin down because it's not really associated with a specific church or a specific person, or a specific tradition. And Daniel's going to talk more in episode two about what it is today and where we go with that. But for this episode, we're going to talk about what it has meant. So I, I think it's important to start out by by saying what originally the word evangelical was intended to mean. It comes from the Greek word uh, euangelion, which means the, the gospel, because the gospel message really is at the core of the movement. And some people even trace it back to Martin Luther, who used the word euangelion to describe those who are Protestant versus those who were Catholic. So there, he would, you know, maybe if he was speaking in English, he would say those, there were the evangelicals and there were the Catholics. Um, but we, we really do see mostly a cross-denominational evangelical rising uh, happening in the 1700s and 1800s in America during revivalism. You have different denominations all coming together for the purpose of preaching the gospel. Uh, and that's, that's kind of the roots of the movement in America. Uh, do you guys have any thoughts about that or I think that was any specific really well, stories? I think that was really well, well, well stated. Yeah, that was excellent. Oh, thanks, guys. Yeah, I do. And I also think you need to kind of draw out the fact that it seems as though everybody uses the term evangelical to describe where they are or where they're not. So okay. you have terms like post-evangelical or liberal evangelical. So that's also Yeah, go ahead. What do you mean by that? Well, I think it's in the term, but I mean they would say like of the evangelical spectrum, Yeah, I'm on the left side of that. I.e. these are the theologies that I agree with or I don't agree with. Um, and I can tell you right now with a name. Yeah. Or they would like to be post-evangelical as in they would see that we need to move past this movement. So it's just a, it's a, pretty, it's a pretty watershed so, movement. So maybe some people would think of it as a movement and other people would think of it as a theology. Yeah, or both. Mm. That's good stuff, guys. David Bebbington, he lists four core beliefs of those who 
call themselves evangelicals or historically uh, four core beliefs that evangelicals hold. So this is what he says. He says it's the sufficiency of scripture, uh, that salvation comes through Jesus Christ alone, the importance of personal conversion, and the urgency of evangelism. And uh, most of this comes out of the 1700s and 1800s Great Awakenings. But most most people would say that the of the four things that he mentions, the most the one that's the most important to evangelicalism is the first one, the sufficiency of Scripture. And this has been the key issue for evangelicals throughout the centuries. Including what, the three doing this um, podcast. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. So what is the Bible? Where did it come from? Is it accurate and can it be trusted? For evangelicals, this is at the core of their historical theology. So guys, historically for evangelicalism, their view of the Bible, a lot of that comes out of the inerrancy versus modernism debate that was happening and especially was hot at Princeton Seminary where uh, where the doctrine of inerrancy was kind of finalized and, and, this and was formalized. A, during what years? So for, for those of you who don't know, Princeton, the school here in the States, it was originally founded as a seminary to train men for preaching and essentially being pastors and such. There was also training in law and various uh, law and governance and various other things, but they were predominantly a, a seminary when they were first founded. Over time, Princeton adopted what are considered to be liberal views of Christianity, eventually focusing on liberal arts and political disciplines than they did on seminarial training. And while Princeton still has a seminary, it is not restrictive to Christian religion today. And it was during this epoch or time that Josh is about to talk about that that really started to be institutionalized. Yeah, Princeton Seminary was founded back uh, in the early 1800s. And the fundamentalism-modernism debate uh, was something that happened more towards like the mid-1800s, late-1800s, was really when it started getting heated up. But yeah, why don't you guys kind of explain to our listeners what that was and what that meant? It was it was in response to theological liberalism that was predominantly coming out of Germany that was being adopted by many of the theologians in the, the States who were taking a more left approach to the scriptures, uh, questioning the historicity of certain things, uh, questioning the miracles of the Bible. Yeah, miracles was huge. Yeah at that time and, and and who Jesus was and 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 the details surrounding his life his resurrection etc and fundamentalism rose up to combat that very sim- very cyclically uh, similar to how the church usually would rise up to uh, combat heresy that would come out with the council of Nicaea and and a lot of other things so a lot of people see it just as another one of those things that heresy is the mother of orthodoxy yeah, and as 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 heresy occurs, the church is able to uh, see that this is against what the Bible teaches and against what the church has historically taught, and then respond to that. It was it was a it was honestly a very Catholic thing to do, because people began to realize, okay, if we focused we focus so much on piety and on how we do what we do, and 
whatever, writing devotional books, whatever it may have been that was so heightened at that time, that they realized, what do we believe about the Bible? What makes you a Christian? Is that being Protestant or being Catholic, which drove so much of the conflict in the new world? Or is it what you believe as, as a theology or as a doctrine? And that's why in the early 19th century, there were so many denominational lines that were being crossed because people felt the urgency to define that. And to me, that it's, it's kind of beautiful because that's, that's, it's Catholic to me. It's orthodox to me. Ecumenical. Yes, I know ecumenical is a word, but when I say Catholic, I mean it's it's very it's something that I that I've appreciated about the Catholic Church is that they they don't change their orthodoxy. It just it doesn't change. Wow. And I think for Protestants, it's always been a freaking Yahtzee game of I mean Vatican II. Vatican II was a pretty big deviation, I think, from Catholic theology. Yes, historic Catholic theology. If you look at the councils. And the papers they published. I think Trent was too. Oh yeah, Trent. And are, we, are we talking too. about like the Virgin Birth? No, no. So we're talking. So like of Christ. So like uh, at Vatican II was the first time that Catholic lay people were allowed to read their Bibles. <laughs> okay, I'm, like that's I'm, a huge deviation. I'm talking about the list of Orthodox doctrines. I'm sorry. This is different. Yeah, I, I, I was yeah, just speaking of the paper. list of, of of Orthodox. So so moving forward from that, fundamentalism rose up to attack to to combat. Yeah, my point is is unimportant to this. theological no, liberalism. Yeah, so to give an example, Schle- Schleiermacher is often held as the father of modern liberalism. The OG Friedrich Schleiermacher. You can tell that he's a bad guy just from how that name is said. Da-da. Friedrich, do you know this guy? Uh, Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday was famous for saying that if you turned hell upside down, you'd find "Made in Germany" written on the mm. bottom of it. Dang. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. <laughs> you know, to be fair, he was in a in a World War Two and on context of history, okay? So there was a lot more going on there than purely theology. <laughs> uh, but anyway, Schleiermacher was famous for identifying that from his perspective, you know, the Bible was written at a time that, you know, people thought that the earth revolved around the sun. Sorry, the sun revolved around the earth. <laughs> <laughs> and that the earth was flat. <laughs> you know, they thought that, you know, the, there were people that thought that a dragon, you know, brought the sun up in the morning, <laughs> every morning. That, uh, you know, they just, they didn't have a, an understanding of science the way that we do today. So when you read accounts of demons or miracles or things like that, you have to interpret that within their cultural context. They just didn't understand scientifically what was going on. Or they didn't care scientifically what was going on. And Which so... I would agree with that. So they would. Say, this sounds very familiar to a conversation we had yesterday. <laughs> so they would. Uh, so so for instance, he would say he would use the the idea of corn and husk. That there's a, a kernel of theology, and then you have to remove the husk off of it to get to the kernel of of the theological truth. So in the account of Jesus multiplying the bread and the fish for five thousand people or four thousand people, he would say that well. The point of the story is not that Jesus actually did this. You know, that you cannot trust these sources to give you reliable scientific 
records. What what actually is the point is that uh, the kingdom of God is one in which everyone's needs are met, and there's giving and there's sharing, eats, and there's there's abundance, and you you know it's it's just this uh, just this wonderful wonderful idea that well, we should try to piping it up. we should try to bring into the world. You know, we yeah. should feed the hungry. We I think that's the, the point I made about Genesis in a previous episode. Yeah, I think that is very similar. So so the fundamentalism the fundamentalists are the the uh, those who advocated for inerrancy is what is what it would be called later would respond to that by saying well no if, if you remove the historicity of these events then they actually do become meaningless and it, what it ends up leading to is well the resurrection was was a spiritual resurrection and you know jesus was alive in the hearts of his disciples and well what what the resurrection actually meant was that the spirit of what jesus taught lives on today you know he doesn't actually but his ideas and um the significance of his ministry kind of continues on today and um, Richard Niebuhr famously said in his book, The Kingdom of God in America, when describing liberalism, he said this, A God without wrath brought man without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministration of a Christ without a cross. That was his summary of liberal theology. I think that that's excellent. And just showing, showing at the end of the day uh, how... By denying certain core truths of Christianity, you, you deny Christianity itself, I think, is what it, what it ends up leading to. And uh, a lot of this debate kind of came to a head point in 1978 when the Chicago Statement of, of Biblical Inerrancy was released. I'll just read you guys a, a quick summary of that, or a quick quote from that. It says about the Bible, "...being holy and verbally God-given, Scripture is without error or fault in all of its teaching." No less what it states about God's acts in creation, about the events of the world, about the events of world history, and about his own literary origins under God, than to witness God's saving grace in individual lives. What do you guys think about that? I think that describes conservative evangelicalism really well. Not politically speaking, theologically speaking. Um, there's even a lot of people who politically would be considered that who wouldn't even agree. Yeah, I agree. But if but if there's a church who says we're conservative evangelical, that's a big point for them. Probably the biggest point. Yeah, I agree. And I think historically speaking, you have to draw the uh, what really shaped this landscape too is the fact that uh, shortly after it rose up, theological liberalism as we knew it from Germany died, failed, and for lack of a better like metaphor or whatever fundamentalism had all these weapons and no enemy now and so it turned inward oh that's a really interesting metaphor i like that and that then they started dividing amongst themselves So we've already talked about evangelicalism's relationship to the Bible. Let's talk a little bit now about evangelicalism's relationship to culture, specifically the difference between fundamentalists and evangelicals historically and how we got to where we are today. And I think I think the big distinction between evangelicals and fundamentalists throughout history and even today is do you retreat from culture or do you engage in culture? So historically, where do you see that occurring? The Scopes Monkey Trial. 
1925. Now, even though the evangelical, evangelical side won in the courts, the creationist position was poorly represented by well, Brian. What was, what was it, first of all? It was a trial about a monkey. Basically, they, they wanted to take evolution. Well, they outlawed the teaching of evolution in schools, public schools, government schools. And a group of people were like, well, that's not okay. Evolution is the scientific theory, and that's all we can rely on. So they took it to court. Alex? John, a teacher named John Thomas Scopes bypassed the law and started teaching evolution in schools and uh, then was was sued uh, and took to court on that. So he was the defendant. But what ended up happening was wasn't the, the 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 court case wasn't was he teaching evolution was he breaking the law that ultimately was the court case but most of the discussion and the defense was around the theory of evolution so you literally see you literally saw darwin be put on trial and unfortunately for the evangelical side for better or for worse they were not represented well and even though john scopes lost the trial and was forced to pay $100 or whatever as a fee. The conservative perspective on creation was highly disregarded and highly caricatured as being... Anti-intellectual. Anti-intellectual, immature, and not worthy of discussion. And so I this, care more about the Rock of Ages than the Age of Rocks, amen? <laughs> I could hear more about the Rock of Ages than the Ages of Rock. Age wow. of Rocks. That is so good. I'll tell you what. Did you know what, man? That strummed my heartstrings. That was a G chord on the strings of my heart, mm, man. Ooh, that's a beautiful chord. Mm-hmm. So this caused evangel- conservative evangelicalism to retreat from culture. And say, you know what? Let's box in. We know it's true. We we all believe it. We don't need to interact. We don't need to be made fun of anymore. Let's just hold down the forts. And I'm guessing this is probably where the Christian school movement came out of. Not positive about that, but this is where Bible school, Christian schools, make a really good parallel for sure. Yeah. So they were like, let's let's move in. Yeah. And retreat in yeah the the fundamentalists kind of responded to that quote-unquote defeat uh, or however you want to identify it by retreating from culture but what was interesting was that their children their children who formed the neo-evangelicals or the the evangelicals uh saw the air in that and they they didn't want to retreat from culture they saw commands in the bible to engage in culture to transform culture and wanted to take those seriously and Would so, you say that that was our parents' generation or the millennial generation? This was like in the 50s. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 40s. Um, it was pretty early. Yeah, and so the response to that was was forming a group of Christians who held to fundamentalist ideals, but who were also willing and, and eager to engage in well, culture so and society So that we were talking them. about, that the, was our parents' generation? The Scopes trial was decided in, the, in 25, right. 1925. Yeah. I know, but it took a long time took for some time all this after stuff that, to manifest but, itself. But yeah, you're talking like yeah. I w- well, I can't speak for I well for our, our own personal family experience. My parents were reacting to um, liberal theology in the Caribbean at the time. So when they joined a church that was 
fraternizing with fundamentalism, it, it, was, it was a theological decision. It was not a cultural decision. But once we were involved in that culture for a good amount of years, what, what was preached was the dangers of the world. And what does that mean? And when it came to education, what that meant was don't let your kids be taught evolution. Let them be taught creation. And that became the driving force to education. It was not, is this a good education or not? It was, is this a right education? Is this an ethical education to teach our children? Uh, I think that that was the motivation for putting us into Christian school all that time was to protect us so that we would not believe things that were against the Bible or against God. The irony then becomes that pretty much anyone can be a teacher as long as they graduated from the right Christian college or whatever it is. Your merit comes by your religion and not by your ability as a teacher of a certain discipline. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I would say that what you have to identify is that both those fundamentalists who have the retreat from culture tendency and those evangelicals who have the desire to interact with culture are are growing up side by side now. So I think that part of that's true, especially in a fundamentalist context, but may, perhaps less in an evangelical context, or, less the, or at least theoretically less in an evangelical context. Yeah. We, yeah, which, which caused even more separation amongst conservative evangelicalism. Yeah, Carl F.H. Henry was a big uh, proponent of the new evangelicalism uh, and called for a cultural witness in secular society, is what he called it. That was in 1967. Christianity Today was a big part of the new evangelicalism and engaging with culture back in 1955. Billy Graham was a big part of that, uh, or he founded Christianity Today as a means of engaging with culture uh, and engaging in society versus the fundamentalists who continue to more uh, retreat from culture. Yeah, there's a beautiful uh, interview with between Billy Graham and uh, uh, Woody Allen. And Woody Allen had this little show, super funny, if you guys have a chance to watch it. And Woody Allen was an atheist. Well, well not, he's still alive. Is an atheist, and he was trying to stump Billy Graham. But Billy Graham was so... He was so concerned about the person in front of him that he understood that people are people and that they're going to talk about what they believe and that you're going to miss people if you don't engage with them on that level. So there's this beautiful part in the interview where he says, well, now, Billy, you've heard about my show and you know that there's a lot of quote unquote inappropriate things on it. And he looks at the audience and they all laugh. And he's like, what what if I got you tickets to my show? Would you come? And Billy Graham's response is a tell-all for the way that he viewed culture in the church. It's beautiful. He says, well, sure, I'll come to your show if you come to my show. He's basically <laughs> saying, if you come hear me preach, I'll come to your show. And he's saying, like, yeah, your show may have some risque things in it, but I'm willing to, I'm willing to have the conversation. I thought I mean, it was beautiful. That's and you're good, like, yeah. no one else was interested. Everyone else was like, oh, Woody Allen, he's an atheist. Don't watch his movies. They're dirty, blah, blah, blah. And Billy Graham was like, yeah, I'll let you interview me. It's a good opportunity to talk about, and it was probably it was probably very controversial for him to. Oh say yeah. yeah, oh oh, I can only imagine. But what it's, that it's just be beautiful like? that he he did that. Sorry, go ahead. No, you're good. I was. You said I can only imagine. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> uh, one other important work is the uneasy conscience of modern fundamentalism. 
uh, by Carl Henry, which Daniel is Ooh. much more acquainted with than me. Daniel, can you give us a summary of kind of what he was saying? Then this is, this is happening um, back in like late forties, early fifties, I think, so, uh, that this book came out. I think what Carl does is when do you ever watch a movie and you're like, oh, I already know where this is going. That's very much the attitude of of Carl in the book of of F. H. Henry. He basically says, "Hey, here's what fundamentalism is." Here's here's the good stuff, right? But he spends most of his time almost using it's kind of like snowball thinking, but but more precise. And he says, "Look, if we do this, we are at risk of this happening. If we let this happen, we are at risk of this other thing happening that wouldn't be good or that would be a betrayal of of the nature of of Christ's ministry in the world." And that's why it's called the uneasy conscience of fundamentalism. Uh, it, it, I mean, it's a crazy. I, j- I don't understand how that book was written then, and was still relevant today. Oh, it's so relevant today. I, that, I it blows my mind. And I think I think one of the tensions that Henry uh, deals with, especially there, is the idea of so many evils happening in society that a retreating from culture and retreating from fun, uh, retreating from society within fundamentalism disarms the Christian from even participating in or correcting for the sake of saying that let culture be culture and let the church be the church basically and and he it just doesn't it doesn't uh, fulfill the great commandments in his eyes and he seeks to kind of um, explain a view that could, uh, that, or he, he seeks to persuade fellow fundamentalists who have decided to retreat from culture to begin engaging and to preach against social evils, not just sin within the congregation. 